0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's uh, uh, CHEST webinar on the COVID-19 therapies based on some of the new new updated guidelines. So I'm going to give a little bit of time for some of the participants to start joining in. While that happens, I want to introduce myself. My name is Casey Cable. I am an assistant professor here at VCU Hospital uh, Health in Richmond, Virginia. A couple of quick pieces of note keeping. If you could please direct all of your questions to the chat. I'm going to try to as best as possible, uh, incorporate them in, and compile them and, and ask the panelists uh, if, when possible. So it looks like our participant numbers are increasing. So I'll give them a little bit more time. Talking about steady. So why don't we introduce, why don't we uh, uh, meet our panelists for the day? Uh, Barb,
1: would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, sure. Hi, I'm Barb Jones. I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm a pulmonary critical care doc, and I uh, study pneumonia and practice in pneumonia. And Stefano?
2: Sure. Um, my name is uh, Stefano Liberti. I'm a professor of respiratory medicine at the University of Milan, Italy. I'm into respiratory infections, and uh, I've been working in the in a respiratory ICU uh, COVID-19 since uh, uh, since almost one year.
0: Great, thank you so much, and I really thank you both for taking time out of your very busy days to, to discuss some some really important new updates to some not only national but international guidelines. So let's starting with that, uh, Stefano uh, or Barb. Um, what are your key messages or kind of takeaways from the from these new updates that that have come?
2: Uh, well, uh, I'll start, Barbara. Okay, so I, I think that Casey is um, we, we, we learned a lot from the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, I remember when, uh, when uh, almost one year ago, uh, we were facing a brand new disease and uh, we were trying to to understand uh, which kind of drugs uh, we were supposed to give to our patients. And then at that time, we were taking drugs from, uh, from different diseases like SARS, MERS, or, or common pneumonia. And uh, now we know that we were, we were not doing good. Uh, but at that time, we, we didn't have uh, evidence about, um, about this, this disease. Now we are in a completely different phase. Uh, now we are in a phase where some uh, good evidence came out. Uh, and uh, we were now able to give some uh, recommendations about, uh, about uh, drugs for, uh, for, for COVID-19. And uh, if you take a look at uh, some registry like uh, clinicaltrial.gov or whatever, you are seeing that a lot of randomized control trials are coming out. And uh, this is really good uh, because we will improve our, um, our accuracy in giving recommendations. And um, if you also take a look at the, uh, at the different, uh, the, the, the scenario of guidelines or consensus statement or documents published worldwide, uh, you can see that uh, these guidelines or these statements uh, um, has different conclusions. And the main reason is because uh, different uh, differences in guideline methodology can lead to different conclusions. So it's always very, very, very important to understand what is the methodology. Uh, Today, the guidelines uh, by the European Respiratory Society uh, came out uh, according to um, 11 PICO questions and uh, and the grid process. Um, These are living guidelines, uh, and I think that Barbara will integrate this with the NIH one. Uh, these are living guidelines based on, uh, on, uh, on a strong methodology, continuously, um, updated. And, uh, this is the way to work, uh, now nowadays. So it's really, really important. And, um, I hope we can use new evidence to better treat our patients.
1: Um, yeah. And I'll just, um, add to that and follow. Um, I think one of the really amazing things about COVID is I've, really thought a lot about it as a stress that just exposes failures, you know, in every system that you're part of. And, um, one of our systems was science, um, and science is used to having a lot of time and, and being pretty slow. And also the creation of guidelines is also a very slow process. So the community acquired pneumonia guidelines, for example, took us about 12 years to, um, in the IDSA ATS that took us 12 years to, to improve upon. Um, and, uh, we had to produce, you know, living guidelines, uh, very quickly for COVID, you know? So I was part of, um, creating, uh, something for clinicians at the VA hospital system and we wrote something in seven days. (laughs) So a little bit different of a time warp. Um, and one of the things that was really amazing was that people really responded and, um, put up some really great science, actually, in a very short period of time. Um, the United Kingdom, I really think, just really show, uh, showed off uh, their wonderful infrastructure for research and, um, and so created really good, solid evidence um, in a really short period of time.
0: No, no, yeah, that's, that, I mean, it's, that's pretty astounding. I mean, this has been, it's been an interesting year by far, but no, I think, I think I agree. I really like, you know, the, the key message of different methodologies. And I think that definitely needs to be, you know, considered as well as we're now having a lot of pure evidence based, you know, randomized controlled trials that it's really kind of uh, leading, leading a lot of clinically what we do. So uh, I will leave it up to you guys, if you guys wish to start talking about um, kind of one of the, one of the newer, newer players on the board, our IL-6 receptor antagonist, uh, Tuxilucimab, I know is definitely um, has been uh, quite, quite a bit in the headlines and I think is definitely uh, some, something new that has popped up in, in these guidelines. I don't know if you guys want to focus on that because we know with the REMAP and the recovery trial, I think there's some opportunity to kind of talk about you know, you know some of the evidence that kind of led us to these
1: to these uh, recommendation changes. Sure. And I can kind of start by um, talking about, you know, how we generated evidence so quickly. So one of the things that was, you know, novel uh, SARS-CoV, we didn't really know what kind of um, outcomes we're going to expect, what kind of prevalence of disease, how many uh, cases we were going to see. So it's really hard to design studies uh, when there's a lot of uncertainty around um, the number of patients, the effect size that you would, Estimate you can't exactly do a power analysis and know exactly when you're going to stop your trial. So they uh had these and and you also don't know, you know, we were trying wanted to try a lot of things really fast, um, to you know, and and make sure that once we found something that was effective, it was you know disseminated and uh that and published. So um the adaptive trial design is really cool. So uh, what we uh, saw, um, the NIH and the world health organization, and then, uh, the remap cap, um, you know, study was, these are all adaptive trial designs. Um, and what they do is they, uh, enroll patients on a, uh, really flexible kind of real world, uh, approach. So, um, there's not a lot of exclusion or inclusion criteria. Um, you know, generally these were, these were generally hospitalized patients. Um, but, um, really otherwise not a lot of exclusion criteria, you could opt in or out on different treatment arms. And so you could always uh, have a, a study that, you know, a, a provider might decide that uh, a patient doesn't, you know, fit a, the dexamethasone trial, but they might want to fit the hydroxychloroquine trial. So you could opt in or out of different uh, study arms. Um, and then, you know, you could also um, establish a benefit. Uh, based on um, kind of some nice statistical analysis around how many people do you really have to have uh, and, you know, depending on what effect size you're starting to see to establish whether something's benefit, beneficial, harmful, or futile so that you can move on and, and really kind of close the study to move on. These are all open labeled trials too. So that means that there's no placebo control. Um, that makes it really good because you know, the physicians don't have to worry about, it. they know exactly what the patients are getting um, and the patients know what they're getting. And it's also, you can use the drugs at hand. Uh, you don't have to use these blinded study drugs that take forever to process an envelope and, and we'll all that. Um, but the other, but the pitfall is that it is an open label design. So that's the one uh, kind of thing about our, the science behind COVID-19 treatments is that these are all non-blinded, non-placebo controlled studies. Um, so I always Think about that in the back of my mind when i'm trying to interpret how good they are so that's kind of just an explanation of the design i don't know if stefano you want to no, move on yeah.
2: to- no this is great it's a pragmatic design uh that um that is really uh quick uh, helpful consistent across different study because we know that uh, the recovery platform data uh, data coming from the recovery platform has been uh, has been confirmed also Uh, externally by other by other research group so um, uh, it's been it's been a huge uh, huge thing now the question Barbara is how we can use this adaptive uh, kind of platform for diseases other than COVID-19 because it's really good and uh, there might be some 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 space some rooms for uh, for uh, for other diseases and uh, well, the um, Casey, you were you, you wanted to talk about uh, IL six receptor antagonists, uh, monoclonal antibody, a little bit, yes, right? And yeah, yeah, I know it was
0: really really hot in the news and in discussion in a lot of the ICUs and around the world. Um,
2: well, I, um, so the uh, the first of all, uh, we 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 need to. Uh, think about the rational because actually there is a a rational uh, about using um, IL-6 receptor antagonist uh, irrational coming from uh, different observational studies um, since the at the beginning of 2020, showing that patients who have um, who have elevated levels of so IL6 were uh, patients who were uh, dying more. So there was an association with increased mortality, and this moved all the all the study on um, on, uh, on on this specific uh, pathway. Uh, at the end. Uh, I think that we have some interesting evidence because if you take a look at the literature, we have uh, more than 3,000 patients enrolled uh, uh, in, um, in IL-6 receptor antagonist monoclonal antibody uh, and other 3,000 in the usual care. Uh, the majority uh, are on, have been treated with uh, tocilizumab. But uh, we now have data also on uh, Sarilumab. A couple of days ago, a paper on uh, Lancet respiratory medicine um, came out. And uh, so we, um, there, is, um, there, are, there are interesting studies. Uh, the ERS guidelines, uh, the task force did a, did a meta-analysis um, looking at um, the effect of uh, ILC receptor uh, monoclonal antibody on mortality. And um, from uh, from uh, eight different studies, uh, uh, and um, they found uh, they found uh, uh, no effect, no significant effect on mortality. Uh, on this uh, meta-analysis uh, was uh, 20, 24 uh, versus 29 uh, with a ratio of 0.90, something like that. Um, but the point is that uh, the two major uh, studies um, that um, uh, offered the data for this meta-analysis were the recovery uh, from one side and the REMAP cap from the other side. Uh, and uh, these two larger studies uh, actually demonstrated a significant reduction in mortality. Uh, and now and now this opens uh, a lot of interesting questions. I would like uh, maybe to involve Barbara in, uh, in some answers. Uh, first, uh, the first question is, um, what is the role of uh, IL-6 receptor antagonist if the patient now, if For COVID-19 patients now, the standard of care is corticosteroids. Uh, So should we interpret, um, should we give uh, this drug uh, only if the patient is receiving or failed a treatment with corticosteroids, for example, this is a, a very important question because after the data of the recovery on the azametasone, now uh, people uh, we have data about about uh, this uh, as a standard of care. And the second question is about the patient uh, selection because we might want to follow the inclusion criteria of the recovery, uh, and we might uh, with uh, with the CRP uh, rule. The 75 milligrams per liter threshold, for example, or we want um, to follow up the REMA-CAP uh, inclusion criteria. So there is, there are, um, there are interesting, interesting questions. Uh, what do you think, Barbara?
1: Yeah, I mean, all of it is really um, interesting. And one of the things that I think is going to be really interesting is to see uh, to follow practice and see, you know, when we um, when the recovery trial came out. It was a single trial. It was open label, but it was big, and it, you know, it had two thousand patients in at least uh, at least each arm, um, and it, it it was really compelling. The effect size was really large. I think that was something like a eight uh, percent absolute difference in um, mortality, um, and you know, very much uh, for the mechanically ventilated, it was very compelling. For the hospitalized with oxygen needs, it was still compelling. And then there was no evidence to support dexamethasone in non-hypoxemic patients, um, even if they were hospitalized. So that changed practice like almost overnight, it seemed, you know, within two weeks, I think all of my friends were using dexamethasone for all of our patients. It was really easy for us to reach for that medication. I think it was because it was familiar. It was cheap. It's about a nickel, a, a, a dose, you know, so, um, so that, that was an, a really easy thing for people to adopt. Tocilizumab's a little bit different, you know. First of all, the original studies didn't seem to have as much benefit. Uh, it did seem to be, you know, the both REMAP-CAP and the recovery trial. The vast majority of those patients were also on steroids at the time, which is why, you know, the guidelines all recommend. You know, I think I think ERS and um, uh, NIH for sure recommends that you uh, not use tocolizumab in isolation, that you use it in conjunction with dexamethasone. Um, And so, you know, we're we're treating one pathway uh, with a very blunt immune modulator, which is dexamethasone. And then we're targeting a very uh, much more targeted path of immune response with tocolizumab. And so tocolizumab, you know, the addition did seem to be Beneficial, but it's an absolute risk, uh, you know, difference of about four uh, percent, which you know, in clinic critical care, that's huge. That's still, you know, amazing. Anything that we can do to improve our patients' outcomes is great, but it's not as big an effect size as the as the dexamethasone effect. And tocilizumab is new. Um, I don't use it, you know, for COPD exacerbations. Um, I am not used to tocilizumab, and it's expensive. And so, I think it'll be really interesting to see how many patients really received tocalizumab. Um, the NIH guidelines uh, really looked at um, the uh, two, you know, these are again, the two largest well, uh, most well-conducted studies are the recovery trial and the REMAP-CAP, both those tocilizumab and serolimab uh, arms. Um, but both of those were pretty compelling but timing was kind of everything, you know, they, they were in patients that were receiving, um, you know, there were fresh admits were, uh, you know, on uh, dexamethasone already. Um, and so NIH kind of restricted its, uh, you know, conditional recommendation for patients that are new admissions to the ICU receiving, you know, high flow mechanical ventilation or NIV um, and, you know, uh, appear to be progressing. So they used some language in there that, you know, kind of, suggested that this is that targeting that immune response on top of, you know, whatever we're treating with dexamethasone. But yeah. I think it'll be really interesting to see what people do with the remap cap and the recovery trial, because there's a lot of other ways you can generalize that those findings beyond just doing exactly what the study did. Um, I think it tells us a little something more about, you know, the heterogeneity of the immune response. But for some patients, you know, we, we are, using these targeted immune modulators is probably something that we need to explore more.
0: And, yeah. and in those guidelines, I and mean, you're right there, there is a little bit of um, gray zone and some of their terminology <laughs> and the NIH guidelines in, tux, in terms of chuxalusenam, you know, they talk about, you know, rapidly acquiring oxygen needs who have significantly, significantly increased markers of inflammation in parentheses um, recovery used a cutoff of CRP of greater than or equal to 75. And and, and there's been some, some discussion in the chat of, well, what like, what practice do you guys use? And, and how do you determine if, if CRP is from another infection or not?
1: That's a great question. Stefano, I, yeah, I want to see what you me? think first. Sorry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, um, so now the... Um, so we follow uh, we follow the the, the ERS guidelines uh, unconsciously because they, they came out today. But looking at the recommendation, we were doing the same. So uh, the uh, the concept is uh, the concept is uh, that uh, it's difficult to identify the ideal uh, patient population that uh, who could benefit from uh, from uh, uh, toquilizumab. However, the recovery found a benefit uh, uh, in addition to steroids. So um, if steroids are also recommended for patients requiring oxygen and ventilatory support, uh, now we we would expect uh, tocilizumab to be given in patients also receiving steroids in, in most of the case. Uh, we also know that Tocchi is, uh, is expensive. So uh, what we are doing now is uh, to um, to uh, offer uh, ILC receptor antagonist, uh, monoclonal antibody, tocilizumab, uh, in my in my my clinical practice to adults uh, hospitalized with COVID nineteen requiring oxygen or ventilatory support uh, that. Uh, um, already had steroids and failed, or they are receiving steroids, uh, they are receiving steroids. And um, another important point from the REMAPCAP study is the timing. So the first 24 hours after receiving non-invasive or invasive ventilation, and, um, and then uh, the, the, the category of patients who are um, with a um, progressive disease, uh, so, this is the, the, the kind of people we are thinking about uh, undergoing to, they, they, they might uh, benefit from, from the addition of, of uh, um, IL 6 receptor antagonist uh, antibodies. Um, and, uh, actually this is also the, the recommendation published by, by the, uh, by the ERS society. It's important to, to remember, to remember that, uh, um, according to literature, we should not offer, uh, tocilizumab or any IL-6 receptor antagonist to patients, uh, who do not require, um, oxygen, uh, there is a low quality of evidence according to the U.S. guidelines, and the the recommendation we we uh, we, we we came out with uh, is conditional. But this means that uh, that uh, there are some 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 data supporting that.
1: Yeah, and I I think like the broader question is also you know how do we characterize the immune response in a patient in an individual patient. Um, and um, using the biomarkers that we have available right now, they're pretty blunt diagnostic tools. And what we found, you know, before COVID-19, there were a lot of studies that were uh, trying to examine where these biomarkers fit, you know, where, were they useful? Are they helpful beyond our kind of clinical decision-making based on other more routine clinical manifestations? Um, procalcitonin, we Really are trying to find a, a good use for it, um, and um, it doesn't actually seem to improve practice if you actually study it in an impl- implementation you know study for looking at decisions around the antibiotics. Or uh, now, does it tell us something about the immune response? It probably does, but it, especially for COVID, it kind of highlighted that you can have an elevated procalcitonin and not have bacterial infection. You can also have no procalcitonin and have an overwhelming bacterial infection. It can be related to malignancy. You know, it's a very nonspecific inflammatory marker and so is CRP. And so is it telling us something about the patient's likely benefit from uh, a target and immune modulator? I mean, the data from the REMAP-CAP study actually show that yeah, maybe, it. Uh, maybe a little bit, but I does that generalize to individual practice where you know does that still tell you whether my patient, Mrs. Wilson right in front of me will actually benefit from a drug if she has not an elevated CRP. I'm just not confident enough you know, in our ability to really characterize the immune response with the tools that we have at, at hand. I think around the corner, and this is again COVID exposing failures. So COVID I think probably exposed a big failure in our ability to understand the immune response at all. It's a very complex system And it has a lot of ins and outs, and we have very blunt tools to to really characterize it right now. Now, I think that a lot of the really cool science coming out of COVID-19 is around better understanding the immune response. Uh, There's some great papers coming out of the Northwestern uh, group um, that's uh, really looking at the inflammasome and using flow cytometry and uh, shotgun metagenomics and really coupling that with microbiome studies. So we're really starting to understand the host pathogen interaction better. Uh, does this help me clinically yet? No, <laughs> but it I think it all, it made us all hungry for better diagnostic tools, better, you know, actual precision that, you know, we can actually understand the immune response a little bit better yeah. um, in lieu of that. I'm not sure if I'd really trust a biomicer either way. Uh, if I, was really had a fresh progressive patient that seemed like they were in that, you know, uh, phenotype of a patient that might benefit from Tocilizumab. I might be tempted to use it regardless of their uh, biomarker stuff. So that, that'd mm. just be my two cents.
2: Yeah. If, if I can add something a little bit, Barbara, is that uh, both in clinical practice and according to guidelines, uh, we, we have, we, mm, we, we tend to have two different uh, way to uh, stratify patients. One is uh, according to, uh, to the severity of the gas exchange. So, for example, there is a, there is a nice figure um, uh, we came up with in the ERS guidelines uh, dividing the, the treatment according to patient not requiring o- oxygen, patient requiring oxygen, and patient requiring non-invasive or invasive ventricular support. And then if you take a look at this kind of stratification, you see that uh, tocilizumab and IL-6 receptor antagonist uh, uh, goes into the um, uh into the group of patients requiring either oxygen or uh, ventilatory support. Uh, This is one way to stratify patients and then uh, you can integrate this when we are discussing about steroids and ILC receptor antagonists with the inflammatory status. And uh, one biomarker that uh, we use for example in clinical practice a lot uh, during the first wave was uh, ferritin. Uh, because at that time we were using anakinra um, as a as a as a um, as a um, anti-IL1, uh, and there are some observational data uh, on on the use of anakinra and other uh, anakinra in in patient with COVID-19, and um, we were using ferritin uh, to decide uh, um, in, in, during a multidisciplinary discussion with our immunologists, uh, those people were uh, were. Um, who deserve uh, a treatment with, with this drug, and then follow-up ferritin during follow-up to decide when to stop uh, um, anakinra. And this was on top of steroids at that time. Uh, so uh, there are CRP, the, there is also a ferritin for, for specific drugs and for specific patients. Um, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't feel confident to say that one is better than another one uh, maybe for procalcitonin, uh, then we tend to look at procalcitonin to decide uh, maybe uh, to increase or not our suspicion of a, of a bacterial infection over COVID-19 and to decide if to give or not antibiotics. Uh, but um, uh, but uh, as you mentioned, uh, it's, really, it's highly variable across different patients.
1: Yeah. And, um, sometimes I think that maybe we should be thinking about these biomarkers similar to, um, dynamic assessments of like fluid responsiveness, right? So it's the, the key word is dynamic. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, if, if I could convince my healthcare system to pay for daily procalcitonins and CRPs, <laughs> uh, would we actually learn something, you know, about that patient's immune response, you know, uh, following it, um, across, a time course, one of the things I think is the most underutilized maybe, um, I, I think we implicitly use this a lot, but is the, the time course of disease, you know? So um, one of my colleagues in Idaho uh, coined a term called the COVID clock. Uh, so when I think about, you know, is this patient, you know, what phase of their uh, disease are they in? Are they in the, you know, early phase of viral replication or are they in the later phase of the immune response? Um, you know, and mapping the time course uh, to actually their their clinical manifestations, I think is really powerful and helps us maybe unpack, you know, some of the importance of the sequence of giving these medications in different phases. Um, The, you know, where we uh, deviate, you know, where our patients deviate from those patterns, I think is something that's where we can start thinking about complications of COVID-19. You know, if a patient's coming back two weeks later, is that you know something different? You know, kind of helping uh, people fit their patients into a pattern. I think is a, a, a good thing.
2: And also, if we want to, to talk um, to end up the, with the with the IL six receptor antagonist story, we 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 should remember that actually looking at the data from randomized control trial, no major safety concerns. Uh, were identified so from a safety profile this is another important this is another important uh, thing to 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 remember so the the, the combined endpoint of uh, requirement of mechanical ventilation and death was reduced with a, an odd ratio of 0.74 and no major safety concern were were identified uh, so this means that uh, uh, we um, we have as we have room for new randomized control trials to better identify the the population, the population, uh, the responders to uh, tocilizumab or other IL six receptor antagonists.
0: So it sounds like you guys have been kind of talking a lot about um, you know kind of in, there's a lot of individualized individualized. Uh, you know, treatment of patients, you know, with COVID-19. And I think that's where, you know, there's a lot of talking about that, especially with different inflammatory markers and trying to figure out which ones mean what. Um, I know that there's a lot of, lot of lot of, discussion in the chat and a lot of, uh, you know, understanding of, you know, is 6-methylpred equivalent equal and equivalent for everybody? Not equivalent, the equivalence of that. But is that something that um, and once again, yes, the guidelines give, give that, that number, that's what's been studied, but what do you, got, what do, you do in your practice? And, and how, do you, how do you truly indiv- individualize therapy for our COVID-19 patients?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'd like to kind of start with thinking about um, two types of generalizability. So when I uh, see a, a lot of times a randomized control trial or even obs- observational study in the literature, um, you know, I, I'm always as a clinician thinking about generalizability which would be clinical generalizability, meaning, can I, uh, you know, use this study? Does this study apply to my patients? Um, One of the things to point out with the recovery trial versus the United States experience is the recovery recovery trial was done in the UK where there aren't a lot of very elderly patients in the ICU. So um, in their mechanically ventilated arm, they've had very few patients who are older than 80. And in the United States, in my ICU, at least I have a lot of patients who are older than 80. Um, and so that would be an example of the recovery trial wasn't exactly clinically generalizable to my very old patients that had COVID-19. Um, and so I thought, well, you know that that could steroids and other immune modulators could be more harmful um, to my population than maybe this um, study. But then there's scientific generalizability. And that's is you know, even if it doesn't generalize clinically to my population, it tells us something about the underlying, you know, pathogenesis, pathophysiology of disease and um, being able to target my therapies, um, you know, according to the understanding of that disease. I think that's where these studies are very useful, even if they're not exactly the same population as mine. Um, And so thinking about what I do to tailor you know, dexamethasone was something where we just kind of used that dose. <laughs> um, it was interesting once the tocalizumab trial, uh, the data started to come out is, uh, you know, uh, there were a couple different responses, at least in my group. So one response was I've never heard of it. I don't really want to use it. <laughs> the second one was, that was very few people. But the second one was, oh, yeah, I'm going to use it exactly the way you know, this study shows and the guidelines are saying, this is the dose, great, easy, you know. Um, But the third, uh, most of us uh, group was, gosh, you know, what does that tell us about the immune response? Um, This might mean that I need to target the immune system for some patients a little bit differently. Um, And so some of us, that made us uh, increase our Dextose, <laughs> or our duration, which is kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, it kind of, uh, it does. Um, so in my personal practice, I've honestly had a couple of patients where I've continued dexamethasone a little longer because they still seem to be just in this really prolonged, you know, the, the trial was 10 days, but what happened after that 10 days, you know, for some patients, they seem to still be in this cytokine storm, inflammatory state you know, I, I want to treat that with something. (laughs) And then when the tocalizumab trial came out, that kind of gave us a little more information that, you know, maybe a yes and (laughs) approach. Uh, So I think um, some of us, you know, that, that is one way to tailor, but, you know, another way to tailor is just being nimble, you know, so if a patient dramatically improves, I don't, not sure if they really need, you know, 10 days of dexamethasone and that can be harmful, you know, so, Um, So that's another thing is, you know, shortening, the course. Um, Remdesivir definitely was another one where in the United States, we, you know, the NIH guidelines actually came out with a statement for remdesivir as we should all be using this. And uh, many of us did adopt remdesivir really pretty readily. Um, And now we're kind of in this de-adoption phase because now, you know, the uh, additional studies came out, it doesn't actually seem to be as beneficial. And it, it, and it the kind of pathophysiologically, it makes sense to try to target viral re- replication in the early phase of the disease. So a lot of us are, you know, starting to de-adopt remdesivir, especially in our hospitalized patients that are more than seven days out. Um, so that's another kind of tailoring a little bit is putting a patient on the COVID clock and really thinking about the timing, you know, how far are they into their immune response? What kind of immune response does it seem to be characterized by? Um, do I need more steroids than you know the trials suggested? Um, well, those are a few things that I've seen in, in my you know, cooperative practice.
0: I agree, and you. Um, interesting note on uh, the remdesivir, because that is the one major difference explicit uh, that I, that I could see between uh, the ers and the um um the, and the. NIH guidelines, at least the new updated ones, is that the NIH we um, they they don't recommend use of, of remdesivir in uh, in patients in the ICU.
1: Right. Yeah. And so that was a change. Um, you know, before it was remdesivir for everyone. <laughs> exactly.
0: Exactly. what's <laughs> your take not just on the remdesivir, but also on just you know just uh, individualized therapy of, of corticosteroids?
2: Sure. Uh, uh, do you want me to take uh, the remdesivir story first? Because Absolutely. we had that. We'll, we'll stop we had there, a, and
0: then
1: I think. Oh, I'd yeah. love to hear that story of how the ERs. Because,
2: yeah, we had a big discussion yes, within. Uh, we had a big discussion within uh, the ERs task force about remdesivir, and um, so the, the the point is that um, so the uh, remdesivir uh, um, uh, showed uh, some effectiveness in vitro. Uh, against uh, um, SARS-CoV-1 and two and uh, and MERS, and this is the reason why, especially in the beginning, we were really into this uh, into this uh, this drug. And um, there are there are some studies that um, that need to be explored and have been explored uh, during this months. The first is the ACTT-1 study. Uh, this uh, was um, 500 patients treated with uh, remdesivir and. Uh, 500 treated with placebo, roughly, uh, and uh, the study um, showed a, a reduction in time to recovery and uh, length of stay. And uh, uh, the primary outcome was the uh, recovery time that was reduced by uh, by five days. Uh, and then uh, um, was, uh, was was was. Um, G- gave us some hope about that and then uh, came out the solidarity trial uh, which found no benefit in uh, in um, in mortality and uh, these were uh, 25 more than 2500 patients uh, in uh, in Remdesivir and uh, mm, 2700 or something in uh, in controls and uh, there was no impact on mortality so the uh, the, the there was no significant impact and uh, they also included a, a, a meta-analysis, uh, um, including the actt one uh, And um, when we uh, decided to, to tackle the PICO question about rendesivir, we, uh, we ran a, a new, a new uh, review. And we found very, very similar results. So the mortality was, uh, was not significant. Uh, and uh, there was also no uh, increase in uh, adverse events. Uh, the point is that uh, the ERS the, 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 the panel uh, thought that actually time to recovery and length of stay were relevant clinical uh, endpoints. Um, although there was no benefit in mortality, uh, however, uh, all these benefits were present in uh, just one randomized control trial, and uh, we thought that the uh, the uh, the benefit uh, was was modest. So we uh, discussed a lot about remdesivir. We voted uh and uh, at the end uh, uh there was no uh no uh, majority in favor of a recommendation for and there was no uh majority recommendation against the use of rendezvousir so um the the the, the risk benefit ratio uh, is uncertain uh and um uh, the um, and we were not able uh, to identify also a, a specific population of patients uh, that were benefit from uh, from remdesivir. So at the end, if you take a look at the recommendation, uh, the the guidelines say no recommendation regarding the use of remdesivir in people hospitalized with COVID nineteen and not requiring invasive me- ventilation. But we were able to uh, give a conditional recommendation based on. Uh, on uh, moderate quality of evidence for those uh, who uh, required invasive mechanical ventilation, and we suggest not to give um, remdesivir to these patients. So this was uh, the um, the final uh, the final recommendation coming from uh, uh, from the ERS living guidelines.
0: Thank you for that insight. <laughs> yeah,
2: and uh, the, the the second question, uh, Casey, was on. Uh, uh, was on uh, on steroids and i think that um we need we need to we need to have a very clear in mind uh, the the use of steroids because actually uh, the the rationale behind uh, uh, behind the use of uh, anti inflammatory drugs or uh, steroids is strong and um is also strong in patients with uh, with a severe disease um, and um I agree with Barbara uh, about adverse events and uh, patient population because actually, if you take a look at the recovery trial, uh, the recovery did not report uh, detailed information about safety uh, of, of, uh, of 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 steroids. So we have a uh, limited evidence about uh, about possible adverse events of, of steroids, and this is uh, this is important, especially in in
1: I think we yeah, yeah Risk I agree. The benefit ratio
2: is favorable uh, for steroids. Uh, the results uh, are uh, significantly different between of patients and this is the reason why the the, the recommendation by the ERS guidelines is a strong uh, for the use of steroids in patients who require oxygen uh, niv or invasive ventilation and it's also strong uh, uh, not to give steroids to patients uh, hospitalized with without uh, uh, with uh, with no requirement for oxygen or ventilatory support. So this is the this is the guidelines looking at uh, uh, looking um, looking at uh, six randomized control trials and a meta-analysis. Uh, well, the majority of the evidence uh, comes from the UK recovery trial, more than 2000 patients, we all know this this study, uh, a significant reduction in mortality for people uh, uh, receiving invasive ma- ventilation, significant uh, um, although um, lesser uh, in, in people uh, uh, on oxygen therapy and no mortality benefit in patients hospitalized uh, not on, on oxygen therapy. Uh, so um, this, is, uh, this is important to, to remind. Open questions. Uh, what is the optimal uh, molecule? i can tell you what i'm doing in my clinical practice but uh, this is outside of clinical guidelines because uh, if we look at the evidence we don't know what is the optimal molecule what is the optimal uh, uh, scheme dose, uh, timing uh, duration of treatment uh, long-term side effect uh, uh, maybe it works in other subgroup of patients we were not able to uh, to to look uh, to look into and also the tapering of the steroids is, is another interesting topic, especially for those who are developing a, a, a post-COVID-19 fibrosis at uh, CT scan. Uh, and gender is the big issue that uh, is the use of a high, high dose of steroids uh, for people who are not responding Um without uh, uh, outside of any, any evidence, any evidence, but there are people in clinical practice doing this. So there are a lot of questions that uh, need to be addressed in the, in the next future.
1: And I'd love to add just also um, I think Stefano brought up another limitation of the studies. They were, you know, phenomenal and huge numbers and, you know, very generalizable to clinical care, but the um, ability to follow patients because they were stood up so quickly. And the uh, goal was to enroll a lot of patients. The follow-up are, you know, is really pretty limited. Um, Once those patients were uh, gone from the hospital, uh, they needed to end up, you know, in the in the UK registry, that was the only way they could follow them. And so there wasn't rigorous follow-up. There weren't study coordinators contacting these patients. There are no long-term outcomes um, about any of these studies. So a huge open question, I'm sure all of us are thinking about this ourselves, is what are the downstream consequences of our acute management of these patients? And some patients are going to have long-term complications um, the other thing, every anytime I see a randomized control trials and I see an aggregate benefit, there's still heterogeneity, right? So there's some patients who it probably benefited some people who it harmed. And so uh we should feel allowed and have permission, you know, to um tailor these guidelines and you know everything to our individual patients. But it's going to be very interesting to look at what the downstream uh complications are of COVID-19 and you know. We will only know in retrospect what we could have done, <laughs> um, but I think studying those uh, long-term, um, you know, complications is going to be really important. We're giving people a lot of steroids, <laughs> so that's going to be interesting. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. It's going to be interesting, and I know, um, you know, my, my involvement in post ICU syndrome, but now with this post COVID syndrome, and these post COVID clinics that we have, you know, coming up is, um, is is definitely going to be intriguing, Especially not just the the sequelae of the, the lung sequelae of, of of having COVID, but also some of these neurocognitive changes and whatnot. It's there's um, there's going to be a lot coming out. I imagine absolutely. So. Um, uh, Stefano, I think, you know, thank you so much for mentioning because yeah, the, the strong ERS rec- recommendations are definitely for corticosteroids as well as for uh, anticoagulation. And I know there, there's definitely been some discussion in the chat about anticoagulation. And I just wanted to point out that chest is having a webinar on um, anticoagulation in COVID-19 um, on April 1st. So for more information on that and a much deeper dive into, into that because that will be more than an hour. It <laughs> will be, we'll be on April 1st. Well, before I get to any more, so kind of a few more questions from the chat, are there any other large takeaways you guys wanted to, to discuss or point out from changes in the guidelines? Once again, before I get to some, some of our, uh, our guests' questions.
1: Um, I think I, I'd like to just say one other thing that something that's been really important to me in my own clinical experience, and just I'm sure everyone else is sort of feeling this is the, the, the other thing that's kind of new is living guidelines. And that's been something that's been really great. Um, I go to the NIH. I love it because it gives me a sense of the NIH guidelines have these pretty broad, it, it, you can get into the weeds, <laughs> but there, there's some pretty broad overviews of recommendations. But then if you really want to drill down and see what the rationale was, um, the difference between guidance and guidelines, it's very Very important. Guidelines are, there's a very rigorous methodology like Stefano Stefano was um, describing to go through with an expert panel, but there's a very rigorous methodology that um, comes up with those guidelines. Guidance, uh, just about anybody can make a guidance. Um, And it's, you know, just kind of this interim um, stuff that's not exactly, you know, uh, an evidence synthesis review. So the guidelines and the living guidelines are really key. And I think this is going to really change the way we think about practice guidelines in the future. Um, we don't want to wait 12 years for another pneumonia guideline, for example, you know, so can we make more things living? Um, every, practice really is dynamic. It changes faster than sometimes the old traditional way of guideline production. Um, you know, I think that's another thing that, uh, COVID has really challenged. So. Yeah.
2: And and if I can add something to what Barbara just said, it's important also to remember uh, that now uh, we we demonstrate that different drugs uh, should not be used in clinical practice. So first of all, not to harm our patients. So uh, adding drugs, uh, as some of us uh, did at the beginning of the pandemic, doesn't mean that we are doing the best to our patients. And um, we know that um, worldwide uh, colleagues have been used different unproven drugs, especially in the early uh, stages uh, of the pandemic. And uh, if you take a look at the literature and also the the ERS guidelines, with the exception of steroids and uh, IL-6 receptor antagonists, there is really limited evidence uh, that support any other antiviral or anti-inflammatory treatments that can reduce mortality and prevent complications in uh, hospitalized patients with COVID-19. So, repurposed therapies uh, failed to reduce mortality or to improve any other outcomes, and we need to um, keep doing randomized control trials. We need to wait for the results of a lot of very nicely designed randomized control trial in the next few months uh, because this is what uh, what 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 covid-19 actually um, uh, taught us.
0: no i thank you so much for saying that and i can't i can't reiterate that enough I and mean, i think that's thing that's circling back to your initial key messages on you know guy on these guidelines that now we are able to make you know have good randomized solid controlled trials you know to really help guide our clinical therapy so we don't do harm or we don't or, or, or whatnot, um, I mean, definitely from the beginning, the, a lot of drugs were just being used. And I think we still need to take that to heart because there's, I think in the chats and things have popped up and other, in talking with colleagues, nationally, internationally, it's, oh, what about this? What about that? It's like, we have corticosteroids, we know have quite a bit of impro- improvement. You know, we, we have, the, you know, with this, now we have our IL-6 receptor antagonists. And so let's do what we know has been proven, and and then if we think something else is out there, let's let's try to investigate it. But I agree. I think we do. We are now at the stage the stage that we are doing so much better taking care of these patients, um, and that we need to really stick to our our known randomized control trials.
1: And um, and the living guidelines um, are so accessible now. I I've really liked them for, you know, if i um, if you're curious about a medication that we haven't talked about today, for example. Um, uh, the NIH, you know, has a description and really goes over all of the best evidence for around any um, kind of antiviral, any other medication that people have been trying. Um, and it's really helpful, even say, for example, a patient, you know, will ask me what about, uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine, what and I can actually, I have, uh, am armed with a lot of really good information. And so I've really uh, reached for the guidelines to really kind of help compress a lot of the Uh, evidence and help me sift through it there's been a lot of evidence to kind of and of various quality (laughs) to really sift through so um, that's another great advantage of the living guidelines so yeah
0: yeah and i agree because i know there was a comment earlier in the in the chat about you know how do we disseminate all of these guidelines and all of these knowledge especially to you know other other areas or some of maybe our community hospitals that that you know the, the, that uh, the, that we're in discussion with that we can't always accept their transfers um but no i think i think that's a great resource
1: yeah that's a great question and i think like um you know another thing that's been amazing about COVID is we've all gone virtual um and i think sometimes that democratizes a lot of the information uh flow and so that's hopefully um you know, going to be another positive um, outcome from COVID-19 is we, we will have better information dissemination.
2: Um, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: No, I absolutely agree. So.
2: And, and Casey, um yeah. I think that uh, uh, there is something in the, in the URS guidelines that uh, might interest our, uh, our, our colleagues uh, worldwide. Uh, and uh, I, I might, uh, I might, um, get some question about that because, um, because we in Italy um, have the majority of the data and I'm talking about the use of non-invasive CPAP and high nasal cannula in COVID-19 and uh, prone positioning. Uh, this is not, uh, this is, uh, not based on uh, strong, strong evidence, but um, I think that uh, at least in Southern Europe or Europe, uh, people are still using this uh, be- because of several reasons. Uh, especially, especially in the early phase of the pandemic, uh, uh, when we we did not have a lot of ICU beds, uh, so um, there's no there's no big evidence there. Uh, we are at the stage of um, of observational studies, and this is the reason why in the guidelines uh, we had uh, just a, a narrative format, uh, and uh, we a lot of these data are uh, heterogeneous. Uh, mostly observational, and I think that um, only three. St- I, I, I was in charge of this part of the guidelines with uh, with um, Anita Simmons and other other colleagues, and uh, only few, very few prospective uh, observational studies. Um, no randomized control trials, uh, uh, but uh, we we know that. Uh, as we as we we said at the beginning, there is a a recovery uh, a recovery randomized control trial uh, comparing a standard oxygen therapy with CPAP and Ifluna cannula, which is cur- currently um, recruiting, and maybe the data will be will be out uh, soon. And uh, so, if just looking at the observational data we have so far, um, although uh, as I mentioned, there is a, a large uh, a large heterogeneity. Uh, we might uh, think about uh, high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive CPAP uh, uh, through either helmet or face mask in COVID-19 patient with an acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, but uh, we need to think about this only in the absence of an immediate indication for uh, for uh, uh, intubation and invasive mechanical ventilation. This is really, really, really important. And also, the other point is that uh, when we are dealing with this kind of non-invasive things. Um, these are aerosol generating kind of procedure. So it's important also to uh, remind that they, we need to use them in a, in a special environmental with, uh, with, uh, with people wearing um, uh, some specific equipment. And uh, all these should not uh, delay mechanical ventilation. We do not have uh, nice evidence coming from the mice control trials. And this is the same also for prone positioning in patients uh, not intubated. Not intubated. So there are some data showing maybe a good effect on gas exchange, Um if are you, you are using the puffy ratio, but if you are using the gradient, the alveolar the alveolar artery gradient, maybe the data are not are not similar. But we do not have data on impact on outcomes of prone positioning coming from randomized control trials. So this is another brand new field for for good research for good research.
0: Yeah. And I definitely feel like those studies are coming and that's a whole nother debate about, you know, um, proning our COVID-19 patients, you know, once again, but if they're technically have ARDS, it's ARDS. And we know that that is effective, um, in, in our severe, you know, that's a whole nother discussion, but I think I know that there are, there are randomized controlled trials going, uh, going, well, not randomized, but there are trials going on right now on, mm-hmm. um, like, um, on a uh, tummy time, we're calling it, you know, our patients mm-hmm. that are awake, um, that are on high flow nasal cannula. Yes. on very high levels of FIO2 and, um, or, more, we're not, I don't think CPAP and BIPAP included, but yeah, and so kind of what those outcomes are going to be, and I think that's going to be very intriguing, um, and we have, you know, just observationally, I've found improvement, but it's hard to say observational because those patients probably stick into my head, so we'll stick to science and then come out with those actual, the, the actual guidelines or the actual evidence, <laughs> and then we'll see what, we'll see how the guidelines then change based off of that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the respiratory support and um, the real fluctuations in our style and respiratory support is really fascinating, right? Um, you know, we started with um, really, you know, it was a whole different ballgame in in April when you know there was um, fear of transmission to to healthcare workers. Uh, you know, there was the early intubation was really important. There was worry about aerosol generating procedures and transmission, um, and then there, you know, we had a social norm of um, practice for pneumonia and ARDS that early intubation was associated with, you know, better controlled intubation, you know, better, you know, for hypoxemic respiratory failure, there is some evidence to suggest that that's a a good approach. Uh, But then it's shifted wildly, right? I mean, in my unit, we've got a whole lot of patients on 100% high flow. Um, And um, it's really interesting um, and I think we've, we're learning a lot, but there's probably some advantages to keeping people on high flow. They can move, they can interact with their families. They can do a lot that you can't, you know, they're not getting uh, paralysis and sedation and immobility. Um, and so, but where's the sweet spot, you know, so it's really shifted wildly. And I think all of this kind of nods to context as being so important. And so I'm I have different intubation thresholds. Someone asked about this um you know even across the the street, you know if I'm at the VA hospital or the university hospital, I have different intubation thresholds because I have different infrastructure. And um and so if you have the ability to manage patients really well on high flow and be very attentive to them and know when they're getting tired. You know, your intubation threshold's really different from if, you have a, if you're in a hospital that doesn't have as intensive monitoring, um, similar to the non-invasive, you know, CPAP helmets, for example, you know, your infrastructure and your organizational setting really impacts what your threshold should be. Um, and so that is a huge thing. Context, uh, they call it, a, what do they say? Content is king. But context is God, <laughs> so you have to individualize
0: all of this stuff. <laughs> I agree, and I think I know that there are right now currently ongoing a lot of various um, different uh, scoring systems to try to figure out, you know, better to try to figure out which patients should be and when to intubate, when, when's kind of the right timing of it. I mean, I know there was a, a decent sized retrospective study that came out of Emory last year in Critical Care Med that showed, you know, that really showed that early intubation did did had worse outcomes and so and th- th- so there there is a decent body of literature that um you know supporting um you know delayed intubation where i agree right early on we we were doing early you know uh sooner than later intubations but i think now there's a vast vast body of literature supporting that high flow is um and delayed is but then right what when, does when is, when is delayed mean mm-hmm. and, when and where is the
1: sweet, sweet spot point. yeah so that's the
0: well, unfortunately, it looks like we've come to come to close time. I would like to offer it, um, either of you any any last remarks or any last um, word on, on guidelines or COVID.
2: Barbara, you want
0: to Thank go thanks, first? Barbara. Oh, man. Well, um,
1: I guess I would just reiterate that um, the dynamism of our data, of our patients, um, of, you know, this COVID's taught us a lot about um, how to be a little more nimble than maybe we were before COVID. So um, I think I'm really excited to kind of uh, experience with all of you uh, kind of how dynamic and nimble we we become after COVID. I think it's gonna be really exciting. We'll do some really great things to, again, you know, like that dissemination of information, that's a really uh, important challenge. I think it'll be really interesting to see how that goes.
2: Well, I, I I can I can echo what Barbara just said, and um, uh, we need just to we need just to wait for nice uh, nice data coming out. Uh, the the webinar of Chest on anticoagulation really really uh, important because anticoagulation is a is a. Another strong recommendation uh, across uh, across different, different study populations. So along with steroids and uh, IL-6 is, uh, is another important uh, tool we have in our hands for, for the best treatment of our COVID-19 patients. And uh, I would like to thank uh, Chess and all the, all the organizers, Casey and Barbara. Uh, it's always nice to, to join this kind of event. So uh, thank you so much for, uh, for having me here.
0: Absolutely. And thank you both. Um, you know, uh, Barbara Stefano, thank you, you know, for your insight and you know, for you know, to have, have have such esteemed colleagues on here. Thank you so much for your taking your time and having your expertise. I think this was I think this is a really great webinar. And once again, I look forward to working with you both again. And thank you so much. So at this point, we'll be signing off. And um, and everyone take care. Thank you. Great, thanks so much. Thanks for the great comments. Wonderful. Thank
2: you. Thank you. bye, Barbara. Bye, Bye.
1: Good to see you, Stefano.
2: Good to see you.